Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Thursday, March 15th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Let's play a quiz. I'll say the first part of a phrase, a pair, a tandem. You complete it. You ready? Peanut butter and... All right, that's an easy one. Meat and... Now, maybe you said greet, but it's M-E-A-T, meat. Meat and potatoes. Did you say potatoes? Okay, we're going to get a little harder. How about this one? Various and, think of items, various and sundry. Right, good job. And so, items brings me to goods, which brings me to goods and, what completes it? Goods and services. Ding, 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 ding. So today, Sarah Huckabee Sanders attempting to cover for her boss, whose point in a speech to donors a couple days ago was that he pulled a statistic out of his keister, That was the point he was trying to make. Uh, The Washington Post headline about their scoop of that story was, in fundraising speech, Trump says he made up trade claim in meeting with Justin Trudeau. So it falls to Sarah Huckabee Sanders to take that claim of Trump's. Remember, the entire point was that he was bragging that he made up a stat, but Sarah Huckabee Sanders' job is now to prove that the stat he made up is a true stat. That, what's the better Word for it about the statement. Yeah, that the lie was the truth because Donald Trump has deemed it so. So remember our little game, our little uh, word association thing? I'm going to read the Sarah Huckabee Sanders tweet, and then I'm going to throw it at you again. Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, in the briefing, I said I would provide the trade deficit number we have with Canada. In 2017, we had a 17.58 billion trade deficit in January 2018. We had a 3.63 billion trade deficit. Both reflect trade in goods, which is exactly what at POTUS referenced. Remember our word association game? Goods and services. Exactly. What about services? Because money can be exchanged for goods and services. A good might be, say, a taco bowl from Trump Tower. A service might be, say, the silence of a porn star. That is a service. It has a value. So putting aside the fact that uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders cited census figures instead of the official office of the U.S. trade rep, I don't want to get bogged down into what stat she used, we need to assert that the U.S. just simply and as a matter of fact has a trade surplus with Canada. It is a fact. What Trump said, what his mouthpiece was made to back up, that is called a lie. And I'm going to tell you why the whole thing is mind-boggling. It's not because he admitted to lying. It's not because he admitted to what we know he does all the time, which is making things up. Of course, he makes things up. It's not even because he made things up, bragged about it, then tasked his staff, yeah, cover up for me and pretend it's true. The Washington Post took a crack at explaining why it was so disturbing that that Trump would go into a meeting with Trudeau and tell him that the Canadians have a trade surplus with the United States when, in fact, the United States has a surplus with the Canadians. The three factors that the Washington Post came up with is that, one, Trump's supposed to be very focused on trade. Yeah, whatever. Two, that Trudeau obviously knew the truth, so why bother to lie to him? All right, that's a decent point. And three, North Korea, because three is always North Korea. But that's not why it's so unbelievable. Here it is. 
Let's say that you're of the belief that trade wars are winnable, which is a belief that Trump says he holds. I have no idea if he really holds the belief. Either way, he's wrong, but he might also be wrong and lying. So this theory, if he does, or if someone like Peter Navarro really does honestly hold that theory of uh, winnable trade wars, it goes like this. We, our country, has leverage over you, your country, because we're the best customers. We buy so much from you. And if we as your customers impose a tax, which is a tariff, that will hurt your business because the customer is always right. The country in the position to exert more pain is the country doing more of the buying. If we buy a lot from you, then impose a tariff, we will cause you pain. And if you respond in kind with your own tariff, but you're not buying as much from us as we are from you, you can't cause us as much pain as we can cause you. So in order to even buy into this theory of the winnable tariff war, you at least have to know who's the buyer and who's the seller. We, in reality, can't win a trade war with China. But if we believed we could, it would only be because China really does have a huge trade surplus with the United States. And therefore, as customers of the Chinese, we can hurt them. But if you get into a trade war, if you pick a fight with your customers, how are you going to win the trade war? Let's say there's a bathtub and your job is to decide to turn on either the hot water or the cold water. What would you do with the water already in the bathtub that's there? You touch it to see if it was already hot or already cold. If the water is cold, you'd want to turn on the hot water. You wouldn't want to turn on the cold. If it's hot, then you'd turn on the cold. Hot good, hot beach cold, cold sad cold. It's not dishonest. It's not just embarrassing. It's tactical idiocy. Not understanding who is the buyer and who is the seller will certainly doom your trade strategy, your strategy that is a pretty stupid idea to begin with. Goods and services, people. And I got one more pairing. High crimes and you fill that one in. On the show today, I spiel about the world's greatest toy store, but it's not that jingle I center on. But first, this is a topic that needed to be explored. It's the hottest presidents. This has nothing to do with water in a bathtub. It has very little to do with Taft in a bathtub. We said hottest, not the Zaftigist. Though if you go for the walrus look, auga to quote a popular motor car of Taft's time. Historians frequently rate the greatest presidents of all time. Lincoln does well. Washington does well. Hoover less so. And when they do, they take into account such qualities as financial stewardship, leadership ability. Those are all fine, fine virtues, but they're not the most important. The name of the book is The Hottest Heads of State. This is volume one, The American Presidents. And the authors are the husband and wife team of J.D. and Kate Dobson. Hello, guys. Hi, thank you for having us. So you rate all the presidents on three consistent measures, and then there's sort of a wild card. All the presidents get rated on looks, physique, and charisma, and then you invent uh, a rubric upon which to judge them. How did Grant do in this regard? Well, as I stall for time and Kate looks it up in our book, (laughs) um, Grant does extremely well in looks. He was a very handsome man. Yes. Charisma... He wasn't a guy who walks into the party and he's the center of attention and he's cracking jokes. He was a more quiet person. He liked to be by himself. 
So we do not rate him quite as highly on that. We give him a question mark for physique because when he was in the army, sort of famously and very unlike the, you know, rough and tumble nudity of the 19th century army, apparently, he wouldn't get <laughs> naked in front of the other men when they bathed. He insisted on going off by himself. So, you know, the contours of his physique, unfortunately, remain a mystery to historians. Well, I would, I would surmise back knee. <laughs> <laughs> You must have a, a historical background yourself. That's, um, you've, you've done your own research into grants. Or at least Bacni. So you rank all the presidents, like I say, looks, physique, and charisma. And I just want to perhaps nitpick on some of your scores. You give Reagan, you give Reagan a three on physique. I think of maybe movie star Reagan doing better. Now, at the time, as when he was president, he was in his 70s, the oldest president at the time. So... Don't you have to norm for that? Why, why such a low score for Reagan's build? We rated them on their time in office just because that's the only way we have an even playing field because we don't really have portraits or photos of all of the presidents when they were younger. And so rating them on their physique when we don't have consistent information about their physique when they were 25. Yeah. So, yeah, he is penalized for being old, as he should be. You rate Andrew Johnson an 8 on charisma. How do you get that? Well... Charisma is such a a interesting trait. I mean, I, I think it is true that it is a thing that exists in the world, and you can objectively say this person is charismatic and this person isn't. But I think it is also true that the charisma of an Obama works on some people, and it doesn't work on other people. The charisma right. of a George W. Bush, you know, for some people, his accent says authentic and and honest and salt of the earth and other people the accent says nails on chalkboard and affectation and Andrew Johnson was an effective public speaker he wasn't going to get up there and give sophisticated policy arguments and be stringing really long sentences together but he was good at uh, whipping up a crowd. I can't and think of anyone else like that. That's weird in our <laughs> history of our presidency. That's funny. Hmm. What president without facial hair would have benefited the most from facial hair and vice versa? I am going to throw a couple ideas out here. Um, Herbert Hoover. Mm-hmm. He had a really round face and I think he would have looked a lot tougher with a beard. Nice. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't know that I could say he would necessarily look better, but the idea of an alternate universe where Ronald Reagan had a big flowing beard just (laughs) blows my mind, and it's something I would have loved to see. I think Rutherford B. Hayes definitely should have shaved his beard because if you see a photo of him without his beard, he is incredibly handsome. Yes. And when you see a photo of him with his beard, all you see is just – just beard. a ton of beard. And when you when your name is Rutherford and especially Rutherford <laughs> B. Hayes, you just wanna you just wanna go as unencumbered as you can. Life has weighed you down with accoutrements <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> Hottest president, who'd you find? Well, I think that depends on a little bit of it depends on the taste of the of the reader, but the answer is Franklin Pierce for everyone. <laughs> I think so. Um, I think you're right. He was he, he was perpetually you. young looking. I don't think it's Pierce. I don't know who I would say it is, but I would say just in the last several administrations, I think Obama is probably better looking than Pierce. I think George W. Bush probably is. I think arguably Bill Clinton is. Which president started out as the most handsome youth only to curdle into a somewhat disappointing man? Oh, my gosh. There are so many answers to that. Boy, if you want to keep your looks, do not become president is a, is a tip I would put out there for anybody <laughs> wanting to, to stay good looking. My vote would probably be Ford. Mm. He was literally a cover model 
in his youth and when you look at a photo of Ford as president, probably if you were playing a word association game, you would not think cover model. Although he probably made more magazine covers as president. I'm just going to guess. Well, that's, that's a fair point. So if your goal is to get on magazine covers, I do recommend you become president. Or just make them up yourself and post them in your golf clubs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is Hottest Heads of State, Volume 1, The American Presidents. I have a feeling it's a little like uh, Mel Brooks' History of the World, Part 1. But it does invite the idea, at least in the uh, reader's imagination, of Volume 2, and that would be Heads of State of the World. And I guess the question there is, You know, you got guys like Castro and Mugabe who ran their countries for into the ground for, you know, 30 years. (laughs) What era do you take? Just the best looking? You give them the best benefit of the doubt, a la James Garfield? You know, I think we would do one of two things. We would do either current leaders, which it gets tricky whether you're looking at current leaders or at historical leaders. Those would be the two approaches. Either way. I kind of hate to write a thing on Mugabe or, you know, leaders. Well, you know, in all seriousness, you hate to trivialize awful dictators by cracking a bunch of jokes about how good looking they are. Yeah. Um, and it's it's kind of funny how when we started doing this stuff years ago, you know, we would crack a bunch of jokes about Putin and no, doesn't he look silly riding on a horse with no shirt on? Ha ha ha. And that was kind of – insensitive isn't the right word, but it was – thoughtless about, oh, there are actually a lot of people who are suffering and dying because of what this guy's like and we're right. cracking jokes about what a goofball he is. Well, I guess the closest you'll come to that is the Andrew Jackson jokes. Well, and we, <laughs> we've got a few of those. Coincidentally, we were at the Andrew Jackson site, the Hermitage in Nashville, on the day after the election in 2016. And it was quite an experience touring through the Andrew Jackson Museum and Library Well, the day that, that our current president was elected. Did you know that soon he would be citing Jackson as his uh, spiritual forefather? I think we could sense it. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, the, uh, there was, they had these big banners up with the hashtag born for a storm, and it just looked exactly like something, <laughs> like this was a preview of what the, the Trump Presidential Museum is going to be like, where they don't really mention the Trail of Tears, or maybe there was like an <laughs> asterisk somewhere. Yeah. A lot of it is about the Battle of New Orleans. He really likes to hang his hat on that. couple points, though. Uh, Jackson, actual general, and Jackson had accomplishments. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I, I, I think both yes. – there, there are a lot of similarities between Jackson and Trump. But Jackson – it was important that he won the Battle of New Orleans, it, important-ish. And he was a successful general. I mean, those were not traits that qualified him to be president, I would argue. But And, and someone who built his way up from just nothing. Which – I would argue Donald Trump didn't quite make his way up from nothing. No, yeah, yeah. (laughs) J.D. and Kate Dobson are co-authors of The Hottest Heads of State. This is volume one, The American Presidents. Let me just say, of all the books I've read this month, none deliver on their promise so much as this one. Thank you, guys. Well, thank you. It's early in the month, but thank you so much. And now the spiel. Toys R Us is closing. In a big way, 30,000 employees will go jobless. Vendors will be stiffed. The entire toy industry is going to go down somewhere like 3 or 4 or 5%. That is big and that is sad. But among the people of my generation, what is being interpreted as the real sadness is not any of the real victims. It's my childhood. Because I remember buying toys from Toys R Us. Yes, yes. And I also actually remember eating dinner at Arby's when I was a kid. We did not even realize it wasn't unhealthy. 
In fact, today, if you take your kids to Arby's, it's considered, I don't know, pretty much like child abuse or at least animal cruelty. I mean, how do they make the horsey sauce? So I know, I know, I know. You might remember Toys R Us fondly from your childhood, but I have a theory as to why you remember Toys R Us fondly from your childhood. One, you were a child and children are stupid or as it's probably more kind and accurate to say, they have underdeveloped frontal lobes. The second reason why you may feel a nostalgic pain when you heard that Toys R Us is closing, other than the fact that you were a child, is that that's where they had the toys. Did they have the toys well or easily gotten to or well-stocked or with good customer service? I don't know. We don't know. We were eight. We didn't pay attention to that. We just know they had the toys. And as kids, we like toys. But the third big reason is the jingle. Jingles really burrow their way into the imagination. And Toys R Us had a good jingle. I don't want to grow up fun. Toys for us kids. They got a million toys and Toys R Us that I can play with. I don't want to grow up. Good jingle. Good jingle. But Toys R Us was really kind of a crappy place. First of all, their spokes animal was a giraffe. And the giraffe was named Joffrey. I guess they pronounced it Jeffrey, but it was with the G. Joffrey. No one that I knew or that I grew up with spelled Joffrey with a G. So maybe this was one fancy giraffe. It's a bit of a fancy giraffe, that one. A fancy giraffe selling some cheap, thin plastic garbage. Toys R Us has the Big Bird Halloween costume and the Yoda Halloween costume for trick-or-treating. Do you remember these Halloween costumes? They were masks with the world's cheapest rubber band that came apart just as soon as you touched it. And the body of the Big Bird was what looks to me just undifferentiated yellow in child-sized tarp. It was a, a, a thin yellow tarp that I suppose was uh, flame-resistant, if not retardant. Also, Jeffrey, the spokes animal, Jeffrey, Joffrey, Jeffrey, he's a giraffe. What do we know about giraffes? There are really two salient things to know about giraffes. One, they're quite tall. Two, they don't make any noise. Giraffes don't produce sounds. Why would you go with a spokes animal who literally can't speak? Maybe they could reach the high shelves or something. As an aside, I think companies think the public is way more into spokespeople and spokes animals than the public is. Take that, can you hear me now guy. He used to be the spokesman for Verizon. And now he's the spokesman for Sprint. Ooh, game changer. Big coup. All the boys at Sprint are saying, you won't believe who we got. We got the can you hear me now guy. Do you think anyone cares? Do you think any actual human not in marketing or phones cares that they got the last guy who used to do the other team's commercials? What are this guy's defining characteristics? Um, he now has a yellow shirt and a face. He still has a face. But it's not like his essence is intrinsically wound up with the product itself, like, say, a small lizard or a duck is with different types of car insurance. But Toys R Us had Jeffrey. And they had the backwards R, and they had the bad grammar of R Us, because children, what we know about them is what they can't spell, they can't really talk. So what we better do, we better buy them lots of toys so they don't spend any time in a, say, school-like setting, which can only serve to remind them of their functional illiteracy. Toys R Us had the jingle, and the jingle was cute. Jenny Lewis from Rilo Kylie as a young kid. She was uh, the first voice you heard in that commercial. A pre-Urkel Jaleel White was in that commercial. A pre-pubescent Daniel Day-Lewis also had her. He did not. I am making that up. So what really triggers us are those damn jingles. That's what hits the nostalgia. 
though I've been thinking about it, I think we can keep the jingles. Can we keep the jingles? And we could just sub in and credit the entity that has made Toys R Us obsolete, that essentially drove them out of business. Here it goes. Amazon. 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 In fact, why in there? We can keep all the jingles, all our favorite jingles. We just need to update them with the various entities and the different corporations that have supplanted the old ones. Let's take the field of electronics. The best in America. Amazon. Your body compares to Amazon. Or take this West Coast-based grocery store. More meat, produce, groceries for less. Amazon. When we say more. Or, in their famous Hey Ma, What's for Dinner jingle, this East Coast grocery store. Hey Ma, What's for Dinner? Amazon. Has the answer. There's also the field of banking. Bear with me. You're special to us here. That's why you'll say we are. Amazon. 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 Banking gun right. And of course, sporting goods. Mo, mo, mo. Gotta go to Moe's. Gotta go to Moe's, yeah. Gotta go to Moe's. Moe's on. Yeah. Amazon. You know, they have no spokes animal. None. And they're winning. I don't think that's a coincidence. And that's it for today's show. Dean Rusk, Philander Chase Cox, Hamilton Fish. These are some of the most comely secretaries of state being chronicled by just producer Pierre Bienname. You know what? Can we bring that can we bring that Models jingle back? I want to do the credits over that. Great. Just senior producer Mary Wilson knows that in Maryland, it's Peter Franchot. In New York, it's Tom DiNapoli. And in Connecticut, it's Kevin Lembo. She's out of comptroll for the handsomest comptrollers. Steve Lichtai has been scribbling the names of attractive Civil War generals from the hirsute to the hairless. He has Alpheus Williams, Ambrose Burnside. Not a fan of that clean-cut hooker. But how about that PGT Beauregard? We had help today from Daniel Schrader. We procured his services from a certain online retailer. Amazon. That's the one. The gist. I would say the president who most benefits from his depiction on Mount Rushmore is Washington. He's got a strong nose, the only guy with a hint of a shirt, and the least, Jefferson. Looks like just a guy. Without the other three there, you wouldn't know it's Jefferson. People would come from miles around to the Black Hills and say, why is there a giant sculpture of Phil from my gym up on the mountain? Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.